Well, what's up, Trace Church? Hopefully you guys are doing well uh, this morning. First, just wanna say welcome to a couple groups of people. First, if this is your very first time at Trace, we're so honored uh, to have you here with us. We'd love the opportunity to get to meet you after service, but also wanna say uh, welcome to all of you that are joining us online this morning. We know a lot of people are traveling, so thanks for tuning in this morning. Uh, my name is Josiah, and I have the opportunity to be one of the pastors here at Trace. Uh, specifically, I get to work with our students, and I know Aaron celebrated it last week, but I'm going to celebrate it again because I can do that because I'm up here. Um, but we just got done with the month of June, which uh, we had a bunch of camps in the month of June. We had over 200 kids and students that got to experience life change uh, over the course of that month. And we're talking people saying yes to Jesus for the very first time. We're talking addictions being confessed for the very first time, strongholds being broken, relationships being mended, friendships being strengthened, people taking steps in the direction of Jesus. And I think that's worth celebrating. So let's celebrate that for a second. Yeah. It's awesome to see, awesome to see what God is doing uh, in the lives of our young people. But today I also get to make an announcement that I've been excited about for a little while. And if you know anything about me, you would know that I hate keeping secrets. So I got to reveal that today. But before I do that, uh, I want to preface by saying this, that over the month of June and over the years, I've gotten to travel to a lot of different camps. I've gotten to be around a lot of different student pastors, a lot of different student ministries. And every time that I do that, uh, it reminds me of just how fortunate we are are to have a place like Trace, uh, that this church really is such a special place. But uh, more importantly than that, it's also just reminded me how fortunate we are to have a leadership and specifically a senior pastor like Pastor Aaron uh, who genuinely cares about the next generation. Uh, many of you guys don't know this, but most times my position, a student pastor, oftentimes we get hired so that the senior pastor doesn't have to spend the time or the energy caring about the next generation. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that is not Aaron. Uh, that is not Aaron at all. Uh, actually, in the last several months, he's constantly been asking, how can we elevate the next generation? He's been asking me, how can we make sure that the kids and students that attend Trace Church know that they are a priority when they step through those doors, when they walk into this building? And so that's why starting in August, we are going to be moving all of our student ministry programming, middle school and high school, to a Wednesday night time frame. And the leadership is both behind this. We are excited about this. They've decided to give us the best. Uh, the best venue, namely this room, some of the best talent, some of the people who are leading worship even this morning are going to be leading a worship service for our students. Um, but then also they're giving us one of the best nights of the week, which is Wednesday night. We've had to move some different programming around to make that happen. And we really do believe this, guys, that this is the best way for us to reach the most students in this city. Uh, that if we're not careful and we're not intentional, uh, we could lose an entire generation that doesn't know Jesus. And what I'm telling you is Trace is not okay with that. That we want to put as much horsepower, as much intentionality into reaching the next generation as possible. And so I'm telling you this now. We're going to talk about it more uh, come August. But I'm telling you this now because I want you to be thinking about this question. How can you and potentially your family step up and help us reach the next generation for Jesus? What would it look like for you to make that happen? Um, and so we'll be talking more about that come August, but wanted to let you know about that. If you have any questions about that, please feel free to come find me out in the lobby after this. Uh, I'd love to answer any of those questions 
for you. But enough about that. Uh, as you guys saw, we are starting a brand new series today that we're excited for. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And the vision behind this series is pretty simple. That right now in 2022, there are more people living on planet Earth than ever before in history. Uh, not only that, but uh, due to technology, we have more ways to connect with people than ever before in history. Yet even though both of those things are true, we are still deemed the most isolated and socially disconnected generation of all time. That according to Cigna Research, uh, they found that uh, right around 60% of adults, so three out of five uh, adults, reported being lonely either most of the time or all the time. That last year alone, 6.7 billion with a B, billion dollars, they were spent treating things that otherwise could have been prevented, uh, avoided, or completely eradicated for people if only they had more social connections in their life. And if I could sum it up in a sentence, I would say this, that as a culture, as a people, sometimes even as the church, we have lost the art of neighboring. That we no longer know what it means to be a neighbor to the people uh, around us. And if you still don't believe me, uh, look no further than our reaction to somebody ringing the doorbell nowadays. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I was a kid and somebody rung the doorbell, like this was an event in our house. Everybody got up from what they were doing and they went to the door, right? And mom is there making sure everybody's hair looks good. And dad is like, smiles, everybody, here we go, opens the door, right? And whoever was there was treated like royalty. It didn't matter if it was a vacuum salesman. It didn't matter if it was grandma herself. Like the second they pushed that button, they became known as company, right? And company had their own lemonade, company had their own cake, company had their own seat at the table. Uh, but what happens nowadays? Somebody rings the doorbell and it's like a bomb goes off. Like everybody's like, get down. And like dad is like scrambling for the remote to mute the TV. And mom is like, keep your heads down. Like don't let them see you. They can smell your fear. And they're like, why is some random person showing up at 3 p.m. on a Saturday? And like ring doorbells made this easier. It used to be you had to army crawl to the door and look through the people. But now like you can sit in the safety of your closet and look who's at the door. Um, but either way, you're not answering it. Like everybody, it doesn't matter if it's your grandma or if it's a vacuum salesman. Nobody's get, coming in the door, right? I don't even know why there's doorbells. But the point being, guys, we have lost, lost the art of neighboring, haven't we? We've lost what it means to be a good neighbor. And so over the course of this series as a church, we want to look at what it looks like to be a better neighbor. We want to reclaim some of what was lost. And so today we're gonna to do just that uh, by looking at probably the most famous passage on what it means to be a neighbor. And it, it's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead, turn them open, turn them on. Luke chapter 10 is where we're gonna start. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. But as you're turning there, I want you to think about this. Um, in this world, there's three kinds of people, all right? First kind of people are what we call rule followers. Uh, these are the people that know the rules, they stick to the rules. Some of you are nudging <laughs> other people in here, uh, but they try to make sure everybody else also follows the rules, right? First group of people. Second group of people are the rule breakers. They also know the rules. They just don't care about them, right? And they willingly often uh, will cross the line, sometimes multiple times a day, and oftentimes to prove a point. But then the third group of people are what we call the rule benders, rule benders. And these are the people who get in the habit of bending the rules so much that they become a loophole that they can jump through. And so my question for you this morning is which one are you? And please self-identify, don't, don't point fingers. Self-identify, are you a rule follower 
Are you a rule breaker or are you a rule bender? Um, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt uh, that I am a classic rule bender. I love to bend the rules. I love to find loopholes. I love to look in the rule book of where there aren't rules yet and then go do the thing that makes there be a rule in the rule book. Um, I love loopholes. Uh, I read books on taxes to make sure that I can find every single loophole possible for paying taxes, but I've always been this way, always been this way. Uh, I even have a scar right here on my forehead to prove this, that uh, whenever I was about five or six years old, I got in trouble one day uh, during nap time. Everybody else in my house was napping and I was not. And so my mom said, hey, I need you to go get on my bed and stay on my bed. If I see you off my bed, you're gonna get in even more trouble. And so I went to her bed and I laid on her bed and I lasted about 45 seconds uh, before I got bored. And I had my stuffed animal monkey with me and I was like, you know what, I'll just play a game. And so I looked up at the fan, the fan's rotating. And so I thought, you know, I'll just keep throwing my monkey in between the fan blades and see how many times I can do that. And so I was doing that, you know, one and two and three, and then I threw it up again and the fan blade caught it and flung it against the wall. And I was like, great. You know, either I'm gonna die in this bed of boredom or my mom is gonna come in here, see that I'm off the bed and she's gonna kill me. So not a lot of options. And so I started thinking and I was like, you know, my mom didn't really say all of me had to be on the bed, right? Like if I just had a couple fingers I'm still technically on the bed, and so maybe I can reach the monkey with my foot, and so, you know, I'm trying to stretch out and grab the monkey, and I can't do it, and so I'm like, you know what, better idea, let's flip around. Uh, I have fingers, you know, and so flip around, start, you know, crawling out uh, to the monkey, and sure enough, I grab it, and then I'm like, well, now I'm all stretched out, so I don't know how I'm gonna get back on the bed, so I start backing back up, and I get almost all the way back on the bed, and I'm pushing myself back on the bed when my hand slips. And in that moment, I went from finding a loophole with my mom to putting a hole in my head and like instantly blood everywhere, right? And I'm like, shoot, my mom is gonna kill me. She's gonna know I was off the bed. And so I run to her bathroom and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm like, just throw some water on it, you know? And then I just spread the blood all over my face. And I'm like, mom! And she like, you know, runs in and she's like, oh my gosh, I told you to take a nap. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. Um, and the reason I tell you that story, okay? I was looking for a loophole with my mom. But in the story we're about to read, there's gonna be another guy and he's looking for loopholes with Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, this is what it says, starting in Luke 10 verse 25. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, that's important, by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And so here we have this expert in the religious law. And so what this meant is that he probably knew the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He probably knew them better than anybody else in the room. That very likely he had these books, the entire books memorized from a very young age. That he was probably one of the smartest people in the room. And from the looks of it, he knew it, um, but he also wanted everybody else to know it. And so he stands up and it says to test Jesus. Other translations say to trap Jesus. Uh, that one of the things I've learned about being a pastor is people ask you a lot of questions. Uh, but one of the things I've learned about questions that get asked is this, that every question has a context. Every question has a context. That whether it's a tough situation, whether it's a past hurt, whether it's a present habit, or maybe it's just simply common ignorance, every question comes with a context. And this guy's question is no different. 
that he already knows the answer to the question he's asking Jesus, but he asks him because he wants to trap Jesus in his words. But as he's going to find out, like Jesus rarely uh, answers people directly. That if you were to look through the New Testament, you would find uh, that Jesus has asked 300 questions, 300 different questions, and he only answers three of them (laughs) directly. And what I'm telling you this morning is this is not one of those three times. Uh, That Jesus instead, he's going to turn his question back on him. That this man says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And this is what it says in verse 26. It says, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, and I kind of imagine like a teacher, you forgot about the pop quiz voice here, where it's like, you must love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And sarcastically, Jesus says, right, do this and you'll live. And for most people, it would have stopped there, but it says, this man wanted to justify his actions. And so he asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? And so basically, Jesus looks at this man in this moment, and he says, look, you're the expert. What do you think? And because this guy really is the real deal, he says, well, I know there's 613 rules in the Old Testament, but really, they can all be summed up in these two, love God and love my neighbor. And for most people, it would have stopped there, but not this guy. This guy had a chip on his shoulder. This guy had a hidden agenda. This guy instead is going to reveal the true context behind the question that he's asking by asking Jesus, then who is my neighbor? And it says that he asked this question in order to justify his own actions. That in this moment, this man, he's trying to prove himself right, and by doing so, he will prove Jesus wrong. And when he asks the question, who is my neighbor, he's not really asking that question, he's really asking Jesus, who is not my neighbor? This man isn't looking for more people to love, he's looking for a loophole. That he's saying, Jesus, who is exempt from my love? Because this man, he knows what the word neighbor means. That even in the Greek, the word neighbor, it comes from uh, the the word um, plason, and and it comes from the the Greek root word of palos, which means nearby. So he's really asking, who is my nearby-er? So who are the people who are like me, that look like me, that talk like me, that think like me, that agree with me, that are surrounded uh, around me? And so in this context, when he says, who is my neighbor, The simple answer, who's nearby, the simple answer is Jews, other Jewish people, that you are called to love other Jews, but Jesus, he's gonna redefine this word for him by telling a story. So this is what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. It says, Jesus replied with a story. It says, there was once a Jewish man that was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, but while he was doing so, he was attacked by bandits, and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. Now one thing you need to know is that in uh, Israel, there's really only one major trail that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a trail called the Trail of Adumim. And in our language, it means the Trail of Blood, like super family friendly place, great reputation here, five stars on Yelp, right? Like, no, this is not a good place. This place had a history of people getting robbed and beat up. Um, It was a 17 mile trek through a very windy canyon and I have some pictures here to show you. Uh, But whenever I was in college, I had the opportunity to actually go here and walk uh, a portion of this trail. And there's plenty of rocks, plenty of caves, plenty of things to hide behind. And so I thought, you know, I wanna test this story out. Could they really have just robbed somebody and robbed daylight? And so I hid behind a huge boulder and I watched as dozens, dozens of people walked right past me and I was not hidden very well. I was just standing there. I have a video of it, but it's really shaky. So I didn't wanna play it for you guys. 
this morning. But it was really easy for the thieves to take advantage of somebody who was traveling by themselves. This trail made it very, very easy to do that. And unfortunately, this Jewish man that was traveling, he just happened to be one of these victims, just another victim of the trail of blood. And so here's this man dying on the side of the road when this happens next. It says, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed all the way to the other side of the road and passed him by. But then next, a temple assistant, these are also called Levites, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. And so here come this priest and here come this Levite. And the priest's job, uh, they did everything temple related. That they were there to oversee all the sacrifices in the temple. They were there uh, to really just be mankind's connection to God. And then the Levites, the temple assistants, they were to assist them in everything related to the temple. To make sure they had everything that they needed uh, to make sure all of those things could happen. And each of these two groups of people, they would have worked on a two-week rotation. So two weeks at the temple, two weeks at home. Two weeks at the temple, two weeks at home. And they would have traveled in between both times. And they would have likely traveled together, but the Levite, just like in this story, they would have traveled at a distance behind the priest so that if the priest came into a group of people or if the priest came into a town, the Levite wouldn't upstage them, that this was a position of honor for the priest. And so it says by chance this happened, but this was really happening every single two weeks. And so by chance, it was their turn to go home, that they had just completed their work at the temple and they were headed home and they see this man that is just inches from death. And what you need to know about these two people is if you've ever heard a sermon on the Good Samaritan, likely you've heard somebody like me stand on a stage and be like, don't be like these guys, all right? Like they get a pretty bad rap. And the reason that is is because in the text it says they looked at him and they crossed all the way to the other side of the road and didn't help him. You guys saw the pictures. The road is not huge. The road is like 18 inches max. And so when they crossed all the way to the other side of the road, likely they just stepped around him, or more likely they stepped over this man uh, and carried on their way. And while it might seem like, wow, that is so callous of them, what I'm telling you is this was not just a crime of inconvenience, uh, that they had a lot going through their heads, that you guys know that like, sometimes helping people isn't what it cracked up to be, right? Like sometimes when you help someone, you end up finding yourself in a position you really probably shouldn't be in or didn't want to be in. Uh, for example, um, about a year ago or so, one of my friends and I, we were driving down Union, and we looked over and we saw uh, this minivan that had hopped the curb, driven down into a ditch, and straight into a tree. And it was smoking, it looked like it was on fire, and there were a bunch of people crowded around it. And so we, me, my friend and I, we were like, man, we, we gotta go help those people get away from that car, because it, it looks like it's gonna blow up. And so we whip around and we pull up on the scene, and we're like, hey, you guys need to get away from the car. And they're like, no, you don't understand, there's a man in the car. So we're like, shoot. And so we like come up to the car and sure enough, we look inside and there's a man in there and he's not injured, uh, but he's heavily intoxicated. Uh, that it's very clear to see what happened, that he was driving drunk, popped off the curb and ran straight into a tree. And so we start pulling this man out of this, this uh, van that is you know, burning and we're not like huge flames, but it was smoking and stuff. And we pull him out of this car and we're like carrying like 90% of his weight. This man has like no body function, uh, he, he's kind of limp, and so we're walking him down the street, and uh, at that moment, I'm not going to lie to you, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, man, I'm a hero. You know, I just saved this man 
from a burning car. Uh, like, look at me. But God has a way of humbling people really quick. And so I'm like walking him down Union, right? Tons of cars going by. And uh, as I'm walking him down, his pants start to fall down. And this is one of those days where like, I wish I had brought an extra belt, uh, a shoestring, um, given him my belt or like an extra pair of underwear because this man decided to go commando that day. And so we're walking down the street and like his pants hit the ground and I'm like, bro, pick up your pants, man. And try not to look like all that kind of stuff. And instead of, instead of picking his pants up, he does one of those things and just leaves them. And I'm like, bro. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I go from this hero who saved this man from this burning car to the weird dude who's walking a naked man down the street, right? And so we get him to safety, we get his pants back on him and everything like that. He gets the help he needs. But why tell you that story? Because sometimes when you help people, it doesn't always work out for you. Sometimes when you help people, you find yourself in a situation you don't wanna be in. And what I'm telling you is for this priest and this Levite, uh, they were often, or they were probably in the same boat. That this was honestly an ethical dilemma for them. That it wasn't just like, oh, we don't wanna help this guy. That when they saw this guy in the road, they knew that Leviticus said, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. They also knew that it said, hey, you need to help your fellow Jew out when you can. But they also knew Leviticus 22 which said if you touch a dead body, if you touch a corpse, you're gonna be declared unclean both to God and man, and therefore you're gonna be unable to perform any of your duties in the temple. Not only that, but they also probably knew that this was a common ruse that thieves would employ whenever they were robbing somebody. That they would rob someone, beat them half to death, leave them in the street, and then when somebody came along and had compassion for them, when they were distracted by helping this person, they would beat that person up and rob them and just keep doing that, and it was like a two-for-one special. And so they knew these things, and so it's not so much that they're callous, as much as they're just cautious. And yes, they still didn't necessarily do the right thing. These aren't the people who we look to for our morality. And it's not the people, the expert in the law or the other Jews there listening to Jesus' story would have thought either. That they would have heard this very similar to our like three guys walk into a bar. That the punchline doesn't come with the first guy or the second guy. The punchline always comes with the third guy. And so they would have heard, here comes the priest. Nope. Here comes the Levite. Nope. But then would come the Pharisee. Then would come the super Jew who's just gonna like take care of everything and everything's gonna be great. But instead, Jesus, he, he kind of throws them for a loop. He's gonna shock them because this is what he says next. It says, first came the priest, then the Levite, but then it says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And everybody would have went, <gasps> you know, that they would have hated that end to the story. That Jesus is setting up the Samaritan to be their picture of morality and they hated Samaritans. And hate probably isn't strong enough a word. The best like equivalent I could come up with was then a, a pedophile terrorist came along. Like that's not somebody you're looking to for your morality. And they hated these people so much and rightfully so. And you can read why in the Old Testament, but basically the Assyrians, they took captive the Israelites um, back in the Old Testament and they did all sorts of awful things to the Israelites. They would beat them, they would enslave them, they would do stuff to their daughters and to their wives and then they started intermarrying with them and the Samaritans were the product of them intermarrying and so they were known as half-breeds or they were known as mutts or dogs um, because they hated, hated Samaritans for everything that they did to their people. 
And so when Jesus says, and then came a Samaritan, they would have all wanted to stop listening to the story at that point. But it says, when the Samaritan saw the man, it says he felt compassion for him. And that Greek word for compassion is the word splachnon. It's kind of a fun word to say. But that word also was used to describe all the internal organs. So the heart, the lungs, uh, you know, the guts. And so what Jesus is saying here is he felt gut-level compassion. That we know the difference between head-level compassion and heart-level compassion. Head-level compassion is when you're scrolling and you see something and you're like, oh man, I feel sorry for them, and then you keep scrolling. Head-level compassion says, oh man, I should, I should probably send them a text, I should probably send them a card, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. But heart-level compassion, gut-level compassion, guys, that's the stuff that keeps you up at night. That's the stuff that makes you go get in your car and drive halfway across the country so that you can be on that person's doorstep to wrap them up on a hug and never let them go. And so Jesus is saying this Samaritan has this gut level compassion for this man that hated him. And it says, going over to him, the Samaritan, he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And some people wonder, why did the Samaritan leave? Why wouldn't he just see this through? And a lot of people think, oh, it's because he had work and he had to like do the business that he came to attend to. But the truth is this, that the Samaritan would not have been welcome in that town, that he would have feared for his life even after saving this man's life. And so he leaves. So Jesus, he finishes this story and he looks back at this expert in the law who asked, who is my neighbor? And he says this, he says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And so Jesus here, he's saying, look, there's three groups of people in this story. First group of people that we have are the thieves. And they look at this man and they say, what's yours is mine, and they take everything from him. But then you have the religious elite, the, the priests and the Levite, and they look at this man and they say, no, what's mine is mine. And they give nothing to this man. But then came along the Samaritan and the Samaritan looked at this man and he said, what's mine is yours. And he gave him everything. And so Jesus asked this man, which of these people was a neighbor to the man that got mucked? And so the, the expert in the law, he responds by saying, the one who showed him mercy. Notice that he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Go and be like the Samaritan. And Jesus, he flips the script on this guy. This guy asks him the question, Jesus, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, no, you are the neighbor. That you need to be a neighbor to the people around you, even the people that you hate the most. That the comparison is very clear here. The neighbors, the nearbyers, the priest and the Levite, the other Jews, they treated this man like a stranger. But it was the stranger, the Samaritan, that treated this man like a neighbor. And what I need you to know today is this, that God is in the business of turning strangers into neighbors. And most of the time he asks us and he uses us to do that. That loving your neighbor, it's not dictated by proximity. It's not just about loving the people who are around you. It's dictated by opportunity. 
And at this point, like I would love to just wrap this sermon up like most other preachers do and they say, hey, the next time you see somebody pulled over on the side of the road, don't pass them by like the priest and the Levite instead stop and help that person. And I'd love to just wrap it up and be done like that. But I think to do that would do this story a disservice because I think this story goes a whole lot deeper than just that. That it has less to do with our hands and what we do and it has more to do with our hearts and who we are. Because that command, love your neighbor as yourself, it's easy in explanation. I could say it a dozen times and you probably get what I mean. But it's extremely hard in execution. Because according to Jesus, loving your neighbor is more than just doing the occasional random acts of kindness for the people around you. According to Jesus, loving your neighbor is not just about loving the people who are nearby you, the people that look like you, that talk like you, that think like you, that act like you, that actually like you. No, according to Jesus, loving your neighbor means we need to be ready and willing to love the people that hate us the most, but even more difficult to love the people that we hate the most. Like I said, love your neighbor, it's simple in explanation but extremely difficult in execution. And I think part of the reason that's true is because we know what it actually demands of us. And so to close today, I just wanna get really practical with you. And all I wanna do is I just wanna leave you with three questions. Three questions that I would really encourage you guys to process through over the next couple of days. Three questions that I think if you would take the time and you would invite God to speak through you with the answers, that he would reveal some of the things that maybe are wrong in our hearts, some of the things that we need to get out. And guys, what I've learned is we love to be like the expert in the law. We love to hide behind the, the questions to justify our actions, but what I've learned is very rarely do we actually stick around to hear the answers. And even more rare do we allow the answers to change us and transform us. And that's what I'm asking you guys to do over the course of this week with these three questions. Maybe it's on your way home from church today, maybe tonight around the dinner table, maybe tonight uh, when you go to bed, or maybe you carve out some time in the morning to really process through these questions. And so the first question is this, who are my neighbors? Who are my neighbors? And at a very base level, that's what I mean, like your actual neighbors, who, who are they? Uh, that I've learned far too often, I catch myself saying, hey buddy, how's it going? You know, or hey, how's life doing for you? You know, like just some real awkward question because I don't know their name and it feels really awkward. And so one of the things my wife and I have done is we have this magnet on our fridge and it looks like a tic-tac-toe board. And in the middle we have our house and over the years we've just gradually filled in the names of the people that live around us. Uh, And sometimes we'll even put like something that they're struggling with or you know, something that they told us in the last conversation. That way the next time we're going to get in our car, The next time we're doing yard work, the next time we're going to get mail, we're able to call them by name and they know that even if they feel alone on every day of the week and they don't feel like anybody else in the city loves them, there's at least somebody in the city that will love them and actually call them by name. So the first question is, who are my neighbors? But the second question is this right now, or right here, who am I currently stepping over? Who am I currently stepping over? Just like the priest and the Levite. And maybe a question that goes with this is, who do I hate the most? And you may be like, oh, I'm a Christian, I don't hate anybody. And it's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> who do I hate the most? Who am I currently stepping over? What needs am I turning a blind eye to? What people am I intentionally avoiding? Who am I stepping over? 
And then the last question is this, what can I do for one that I wish I could do for many? What can I do for one that I wish I could do for many that far too often we see a need and we think to ourselves, well, if I help them, I gotta help everyone. It's like, no, you don't. If you help that one person, I have to help everybody else, and so then we end up helping nobody, and the logic isn't great there. But instead, you know, how do we make a difference in this city? It's one neighbor at a time. That, that old adage goes, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And in the same way, if we wanna make a difference in this city, we gotta start with the one, not the many. And so what can I do for one that I wish I could do for many? And so take some time to process through those things over the course of this week, but don't just ask the questions. Guys, act on the answers. Stick around for the answers. Let the answers change you, but then do something about it. Guys, I believe we have lost the art of neighboring as a culture, but I really do believe we can get it back. But if we wanna make a difference in the city of Colorado Springs, guys, we gotta do it one neighbor at a time. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this story. And God, I know I've been challenged all week by it of, God, who are the needs, uh, what are the needs that I'm overlooking? Who are the people that I'm stepping over? And so God, in these three questions of who are my neighbors, uh, what, who am I currently stepping over, and what can I do for one that I wish I could do for many? God, I pray you would reveal answers to us. But God, that those wouldn't just be stagnant answers that, that hit our heads, but God, they would travel to our hearts and out through our hands that we would act on them, Lord. God, I pray that we would be like the Samaritan, that we would stop, we would be inconvenienced, God, that our compassion would override uh, our, our convenience and inconvenience of life. And God, that we would be the kind of people that look like your son, Jesus, that people can point to and say they're different and that we'd have an opportunity to share uh, the good news of your son with them. God, I'm grateful for your son. I'm grateful for this story. We love you and it's in your son's name we pray, amen.